The Gist is brought to you by 1-800-Flowers.com, offering beautiful, abundant bouquets for birthdays, anniversaries, Mother's Day, or just because. For a limited time, send three dozen sorbet roses for just $36 when you visit 1-800-Flowers.com slash gist. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today is a great day for Hamilton, for Tubman too. But don't worry, Broadway freakazoids, your precious Hamilton will not be booted off the $10 bill. Though that was the plan, here's Jack Lew, secretary of the building on the back of the 10 last year, explaining that it's high time we had a woman on a bill, but back then he was targeting a different bill. We will write that wrong, and when the new redesigned $10 note is released, it will bear the portrait of a woman. That speech was made in June 2015. In August 2015, the Broadway show Hamilton debuted, and it was as if Jack Lew had taken aim at cat-eating aliens from Melmac circa 1985. That's right, Alf. Hamilton's a lot like Alf. He's like the modern Alf. Although Alf never won a Pulitzer. Wait, let me check. People's Choice Award, cover of Dynamite Magazine, Steady Institute Image Award. No, Alf never won a Pulitzer. Hamilton won a Pulitzer yesterday, which coincided, as Pulitzers often do, with an indictment. The Manhattan District Attorney successfully charged a counterfeit Hamilton ticket seller. And that man's name was Aaron Burr. No, here's the press release. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus R. Vance Jr. today announced the indictment of Anthony Hugger, 32, for selling and attempting to sell forged tickets to the Broadway musical Hamilton. That mother hugger. WCBS did a story two months ago on the victim. Full out, legit, Ticketmaster ticket. The back had the same print as a real ticket, had a same picture like a real ticket would have. Everything looked real. Now, I'm worrying about other Pulitzer Prizes being dangled out there as scams. Someone's going to entice you to purchase a print of the 2014 winner for feature photography, Daniel Berhilak. And then when you come home and rip it open and look at it, you say, wait, this isn't a gripping, courageous photograph of the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. This is a publicity photo of Barbara Mandrell. What gives? Or you go to buy a leather-bound version of the 2014 Pulitzer for editorial writing, only to realize this is not the work of the editorial staff of the Oregonian and their lucid editorials explaining the urgent but complex issue of rising pension costs. It's a cut-and-paste version of Kanye West's last 40 tweets. Though he does make some excellent points about rising pension costs. I worry. I really worry. But worry no more, because even though Fugazi tickets to Hamilton were being passed as real, the 10 will still have that rapping, dashing Treasury Secretary of Yore upon it. Whereas the equally off-the-hizzle Treasury Secretary of today, Jack Lew, decided to kick Andrew Jackson off the 20. This move will be, I predict, even better received than the Department of Treasury's last two major announcements from their website, Testimony of Fiscal Assistant Secretary David A. Lebrick before the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. And before that, Treasury designates Libyan for political obstruction and undermining peace, security, and stability of Libya. Andrew Jackson, even by the standards of his time, was a rapacious, vicious demagogue. Did some good things, helped settle the interior, grew the economy a little bit. But Harriet Tubman was a true hero, virtuous, brave, saved a thousand souls in the face of daunting odds. 
Now, as a woman, I assume her $20 will be worth $15.80 of an Andrew Jackson $20 bill if I'm doing my amount of woman earns to amount of man earns calculations. But it is a glorious day for history, for justice, and for musical theater nerds, the three pillars of a great democracy. On the show today, I spiel about what you should expect in life. All right, a little less grand. Let me put it a different way. I spiel about your life expectancy. But first, in New York, big vote yesterday. Wouldn't you know it? The majority of delegates on the Democratic side went to the woman who once served that state in the Senate and the man on the Republican side who once put his name on a lot of tall buildings abutting the West Side Highway. Jamel Bowie is here with his analysis. Yesterday, Trump won, Hillary won, and both of those results were widely expected in their home states or home, in quotes, for Hillary Clinton home states. Yet, if you hear the analysis today, although the wins should have been baked into projections going forward, I don't know, it's probably just a consequence of the media always needing conflict, but this is surprising. This changes everything. It really doesn't change that much. Both of these candidates are front runners, though that means different things. Here with analysis, to talk about the front runners, to talk about their main opponents is Jamel Bowie. He's the chief political correspondent of Slate Magazine. You know Slate. You know Jamel. Hello, Jamel. Hello, Mike. Let's talk about the Democrats first. And you wrote an interesting piece about Bernie Sanders. There is no Bernie Sanders movement. Well, I was next to a rally in Prospect Park with 28,000 students. I heard about a rally in Washington Square Park with 28,000 people there. So he draws thousands of people. That does not a movement make? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, the United States is very large and it has a lot of people. And a large country to lots of people, If it does not take that much effort to gather large crowds. And so Sanders' 28,000, 18,000-person rallies are great, but I don't think they make a movement. They're not directed energy in any meaningful sense, or they're not energy directed towards any other thing than trying to elect Bernie Sanders president of the United States. And I don't think that constitutes a movement. Or there are so many different things that you can't say it's one thing. I mean, to some, it's just an outgrowth of the Occupy movement. And to others, it's, you know, hippie liberalism. And to a third, it's wanting to be young, but not get in line behind Hillary Clinton. So once you, sure, it might all manifest itself in Bernie go Bernie. But since they're all such diffuse motivations, that would counteract the idea of a movement. I think that what we have in the Bernie Sanders campaign is the potential of uh, a lot of different trends around politics are kind of coalescing behind Sanders, both sort of the apparent liberalism of young people that's gone beyond what we typically expect to really encompass an economic liberalism, the change in fundraising technology that makes it possible to raise tens of millions of dollars from non-elite sources. I mean, these are the sorts of things that are raw materials for a movement, and I think specifically an effort to move the Democratic Party from being a party on the left that encompasses liberals but isn't necessarily of the left to a party that very much is of the left. And I don't think the Sanders campaign in itself is that, but I think energy that dissipates from the Sanders campaign can form into that. Do you think some of the appeal isn't just that it's larger than it was before, but that the centrist candidate Hillary Clinton is more flawed than other centrist candidates who have been in that role? Two things. The first is that I think it's underappreciated, not in sort of like you should be grateful way, but in just kind of an analytical way, the extent to which today's Clintonian centrism is 
well to the left of yesterday's Clintonian centrism, that the Democratic Party as a whole has shifted to the left in, I think, important ways. And Clinton being very much a politician of the center reflects that shift. Compared to other people in comparable positions, I don't I don't think she's all that flawed. I mean, John Kerry is no more virtuous. John Kerry, 2004. Right, right. Is really no more Not virtuous, or... but baggage or electable or whatever we want to talk about an appeal as a character. You're right. John Kerry, Al Gore, what's so great about them? I would say on paper, Hillary Clinton has a lot more positives than they do, i.e. the chance appealing to Democrats to elect the first woman. Lots of estimations of that kind of thing, like whether someone is, you know, seems more electable or has more baggage, is so much the function of whether they're winning or whether they're losing, right? So like, if Hillary Clinton had won the primary in 2008, we would say something to the effect of, you know, her strong resilience uh, demonstrates, you know, hidden qualities or something, something, the narrative would be much different. The fact that Hillary Clinton is facing this strong challenge, I think, emphasizes the fact that she's been in politics for a couple decades now and has all the battle scars and all the all the baggage that comes with that. But I don't think it's necessarily any worse than any any other comparable figure. And I'll say, right, that when we were talking about Joe Biden jumping into the race last fall. You know, as soon as that became a quasi possibility, folks, including myself, started talking about his baggage, right? Yes, that, like, exactly. All of his problems from being on being in national politics for so long. One of my views about politicians, that, like so much of what people criticize about them, are is not especially unique. It's just sort of like we justify it in terms of this person, but it's things that are endemic to just being in national politics and being coalition leaders and engaging in this kind of effort. And it's useful to try to disentangle what is specific to a person from what is just kind of what is inherent to the role that person inhabits. Yeah. You know, 2008, which was the campaign I covered most, Fred Thompson. Fred Thompson is joining the race. And before he joined the race, this clamor to get Fred Thompson in. And then almost as soon as he joined, wow, this guy stinks. Same with General (laughs) Wesley Clark. Oh, can you believe if Wesley Clark ran, he's a general, will win on these issues. Then he gets in. It's like, man, we don't like this guy. That happens all the time. Right. Right. I want to ask you one more thing about Bernie and then maybe lay one of my theories on you. So my question to you is, do you think, and this has been said, that Bernie has pulled Hillary to the left? I think yes and no. I think that if you look at Clinton's campaign from the beginning when she announced to the present, it is very clear that she started the campaign well before Bernie Sanders was a meaningful force, that she started the campaign, you know, anticipating that the Democratic Party had moved to the left. Her Mm -hmm. positions on immigration, on criminal justice reform, reflect basically the Obama consensus, a nudge to the left. I think it was only a nudge to the left because Clinton wanted to keep space open towards the center, to her right, for a general election. I think what Bernie has done is basically blocked off that option. Right. That like now she can't really turn to the center because of the Sanders challenge. And there will probably there are there are and will continue to be places where she moves to the left of where she was. I think there are 
issues where she's kind of kind of stay in within like a narrow band. You saw this with the conversation around the minimum wage. Like I yes. think her position is twelve dollars. I do not think she's going to come out and say we should have a na- national fifteen dollar an hour wage. But thanks to Bernie, she can no longer say that she wouldn't sign a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Like she now has she's committed to saying, well, if that bill got to my desk, I will sign it. Is Trump? any clearer, any closer to winning this on the first ballot or figuring out a way to win the nomination if he doesn't win it on the first ballot? Did New York help him at all? Oh, New York definitely helped him. I think New York, you know, bolsters delegates, bolsters popular vote. I think New York bolsters what will be his case come the convention, that even if he falls short of what is kind of an arbitrary sort of line, that he has the moral victory, right? That he has won the most delegates, he has won the most votes, he has won the most states, and that by any kind of, any any typical measure of democratic legitimacy, he ought to be the nominee. And I think what Republican elites are going to run into is the very real sense that, yeah, when you win the most, then you win, right? That's just how this works. Whether or not you reach some target that's specified in the rules, having the most votes entitles you to be the victor. And Trump will argue that. I think it's a powerful argument. I think Republican elites who think they can simply take the nomination from Trump because of the rules are going to find themselves in a really tough position when that is not the case. And if they do manage it, I think it kind of inevitably fractures their party. How much of the possibility of someone other than Trump who didn't get as many delegates as him, how much of it depends on how many delegates that person got? You know, if Ted Cruz is behind Trump by 300 or 500, does that really matter? If John Kasich comes into the convention in the low triple digits as opposed to the mid triple digits, does that matter? I think it matters in part because it just signals how each candidate, how acceptable they are to the to the broad Republican Party. What's funny, right, is that you have Cruz, who is very much a factional candidate of like the extreme right. You have Kasich, who is the factional candidate of kind of the moderate side of the Republican Party, such, such that exists. And then you have Trump, who actually more than either of those two candidates bridges the divide. I mean, he throughout this campaign has been the one uniter of the Republican Party um, in a weird way. And that's because his issue valence, right, isn't on size of government or whatever. It's basically on immigrants. And that cuts across ideological lines to his advantage. Reince Priebus, chair of the RNC, says the nomination should go to someone who has run or is running for president. Why would he say that? Uh, to, to, to open up options, to float the possibility that they might pluck Marco Rubio out? I don't know. But why would he close? I mean, if it's going to be someone who doesn't express the will of the voters, why would he close the door off from someone who didn't run for president? What, what does he get by making that statement is my question. He's closing the door to someone who did run for president just to avoid the party exploding. I mean, think about just how disruptive it would be. If by the time that June comes around, it's been like 10 or 11 million people have voted for Donald Trump and their voices are ignored, in addition to the six or seven million people who voted for Ted Cruz or the million or two who voted for John Kasich, yeah. right, that all these millions of Republican voters cast their ballots for one of these three men and then the nomination went to someone who didn't even run, didn't even dine to ask for the consent of the voters. If I were a Republican, I'd be livid. I would be absolutely livid if that happened. I I just don't think Priebus is going to risk tearing the party apart even further. And this is, again, why I think Trump will have the moral argument on his side, because I think it just runs counter to people's intuitions that you would 
take the nomination from someone who won the most. And it opens up the possibility, right, in the future of it happening again to someone maybe that you like. You know, since this is all played out as as it's played out, does it make us question the wisdom of the rule of clinching the nomination with a number of delegates? Because if you have this rule, look, you need in the Republican side 1237 to clinch. But absent that, what happens? Oh, we're just going to count who has the most and we'll give it to that guy anyway. Then what's the whole deal with clinching the delegates? I mean, did they not think out ahead enough that if it creates a situation where everyone who doesn't have the most delegates just has a worse argument than the person who does, then this whole rule about you need to get past this line to say you're the nominee was just, you know, one of these uh, erasable lines in the sand? Well, for Republicans, I think it I think it does underscore the weakness of the system that if there is if there is a stalemate, there is no way to break the tie in that in the Republican primary. Democrats, of course, have superdelegates, which act as this extra majoritarian force to decide in the event of a stalemate or a, a tiebreaker. Or in the case of 2008, a candidate who didn't win the popular vote, but who won the majority of delegates and was clearly the stronger candidate. And there, there was a consensus that they were the stronger candidate. Um, they exist to put that person over the edge. Uh, but I mean, I think I think this <laughs> what this suggests is that Republicans need to adopt superdelegates. And ironically, Democrats may pare back their use of superdelegates because of how contentious they've been in that primary. Yeah, everyone always fights the last battle. I think Hamilton would favor superdelegates, though, on this day. Let's note that. I So I think so, too. And I'm going to make this argument really quickly. And that yeah. is because I think people misunderstand presidential primaries, which are not opportunities for sort of personal self-affification and and sort of saying a voice, but are a mechanism for parties to determine their nominees. And as such, do not need to be strictly majoritarian, that it's perfectly okay that we have caucuses and closed primaries and open primaries and superdelegates, because they're all different ways of trying to figure out who would be the best single person to represent a national party. This is my uh, uh, American historian hat on. No, this is good. I like the hat. You have the politics hat, the superhero hat, and the American historian hat. I like all the hats. The official hat is chief political correspondent of Slate. Thank you, Jamel Bowie. Thank you, Mike. There are so many reasons to send roses this time of year, and I could list all the occasions of life and talk about a birthday. It's Mother's Day, all right? We love our moms, but we get really super uncreative when it comes to giving them gifts. And yet, I have evidence, I have proof that no matter what the motivation, your mom will not say he couldn't think of anything else. Your mom will say, ah, roses. And here is my proof. 1-800-Flowers.com. It is a new sponsor of The Gist. And sometimes sponsors are really nice and they say, hey, how about we send you our product? So I said, hey, how about instead of sending it to me, you send it to my mom. And so they did. And then she sent me an email saying, Mike, the flowers were delivered today with a lovely personalized note. Thank you for your continued support of 1-800-Flowers. Dozens of beautiful mixed color roses. Thank you so much. And a screenshot. And she was really touched. 
even with the corporate branding message. So let me continue with the corporate branding, but at the same time, assure you that if you send these roses, your mom, whoever, is going to like them. 1-800-Flowers has an exclusive offer for my listeners, 36 beautiful sorbet roses for just 36 bucks, an abundant bouquet of three dozen roses for 36 bucks. That is an incredible value. I will do the math for you. I already did when I said three dozen and told you it was 36 bucks. It's a dollar a rose. You can't get a delivery of a dollar a rose. Really nice, fresh roses, except through this offer. Have them delivered tomorrow. Lock in the amazing deal now for delivery in time for Mother's Day. You really should get on this and order now. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com slash gist from your desktop or your mobile device. That's how you get the fantastic deal. 1-800-Flowers.com slash gist. And now the spiel. That's life. The new stats about life expectancy are out, and we have some bad news. You are going to die. But some good news, if you're a black man, you're going to die a little later than last year. But some bad news for white women, he's just not into you living past 82, him being the Grim Reaper. The life expectancy of white, non-Hispanic women in the U.S. dipped from 81.2 years to 81.1 years. A CDC demographer told the Washington Post that a decline can, in part, be attributed to drug overdoses, smoking, alcohol, disease, and suicide. This was the first time life expectancy for white women has ever dipped since they've been doing the stats. But, and this is weird to me, life expectancy for black men went up. Black men had less alcohol, drugs, disease, and suicide last year than they did the year before? I don't know. Their life expectancy did go up, though it didn't pass white people. And did you know that Hispanics have a longer life expectancy than black people, white people, whoever else they've been counting? Now, this all got me to thinking. What is life expectancy? Well, we all know it doesn't mean you're certainly going to die at 78.8 or whatever the number is for your more descriptive slice of the population. But it also doesn't mean that the average of all people around today, the average age they'll live to, is what they say the life expectancy is. It's not true that our fellow Americans are going to live an average of 78.8 years. There are a lot of stats that do essentially mean this, right? We know they don't necessarily apply to us individually, but in the aggregate, they apply to all of us. Like when we say per capita incomes around 54,000, that's the median. You might not earn it, but on average, meaning the median, some above, some below, that's what it is for the people around today. Life expectancy does not work like that. See, life expectancy is short for life expectancy at birth. And that is actually short for life expectancy at birth if current mortality conditions remain unchanged. But current mortality conditions never remain unchanged. The woman who died in 2014, where the life expectancy for women was 81.1, when they were born in 1935, the life expectancy was only 63 years. We don't know what the life expectancy of a baby is until that baby dies. So sad, a baby dying. But then again, she might be 82, so a little less sad. See, what life expectancy really is, is a census of all the people who died last year and a calculation of the median age of death. The average or median age of death might sound a little morbid, but call me strange. I like morbidity. I mean, call me really strange. I even listened to the CDC's podcast about morbidity. 
Welcome to A Cup of Health with CDC, a weekly feature of the MMWR, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Gaines. If listening to that interesting podcast is morbid, then call me morbid. And if listening to it in a coffin while slathered in goat entrails is even more morbid, then, then I've said too much. I guess the CDC knows what it is doing by promoting this idea of life expectancy. It's a great term. Life expectancy. Life. Good. Expectancy. Optimistic. Instead of median death age. You're living in a death age. That's Mike in the goat coffin type stuff. That's why when you hear news reports saying things like life expectancy is going up or the life expectancy of Americans has increased, that's wrong. The life expectancy of Americans, as in the present tense, is yet to be determined. The life expectancy of recently dead Americans, that's what they're reporting to us. So I think the CDC is right to brand the stat this way. Of course, the CDC occasionally has missteps. I was on their page today researching life expectancy, and I found that this is Minority Health Month. Yes, we're living in Minority Health Month. Minorities, non-whites, make up 28% of the population, but the CDC gives them 8.33% of the year. Hmm. All I know is that I continue to live my life as if every day's my last, which statistics tell us that if I were a white woman of 81 years, one month, and a few days in 2004, statistically speaking, it was. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi wants to replace the quarter with the dollar. No, not who's on them, just the ones in her pocket in an attempt to quadruple her net worth. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, was really into those state quarters. And he floated a proposal that if you threw a New Jersey state quarter into a toll booth on the Garden State Parkway, then kids ride for free. Andy Bowers, the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, always says that the Lincoln Memorial on the back of the penny is kind of a spoiler when you think about it. The gist, supporting a gay rights icon on the $3 bill. It's an act of defiance, appropriation, and cheekiness. Mumpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>